do the Bible, Hogwarts, disciples, and Dementors all have in common? This podcast. Welcome to the Gospel According to Harry Potter, a podcast for Potterheads, Jesus freaks, and everyone in between. My name is Ashley, and together we'll examine the entire Harry Potter series, chapter by chapter, through a biblical lens, looking for insights into Harry Potter from a Christian worldview and insights into real life from a wizarding worldview. So grab your favorite Harry Potter book, your go-to Bible translation, and maybe a mug of warm butterbeer and get ready to explore the wizarding world like never before. Hello, and welcome back to The Gospel According to Harry Potter. I'm Ashley, the muggle behind the mic, and I'm looking forward to our discussion of Chapter 6 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone today. If you are brand new to the show, thanks for joining us. Uh, What you are stepping into is a brand new way to read through the Harry Potter series, Um, and so here's how it works. I'm going to go through a recap of the entire chapter, but every now and then you're going to hear the word Lumos which means that I'm about to shine a light on a biblical element that I see in the story. I am going to be discussing Christianity from a mature biblical worldview, and so the show notes are going to contain all of the scriptural elements that I have, as long as any other uh, links that I will include there for you. So make sure you check those out. I want to encourage everyone to dig deeper into scripture on your own. And if there's anything you still don't understand or still have questions about, please feel free to come and DM me over at Instagram at Gospel According to Harry Potter. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you think or maybe some other biblical insight that you see that I didn't pick up on. I mean, the sky's the limit. I would love to keep talking about this. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. This is a long chapter and there's a lot to get to. So today we are reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling, Chapter 6, The Journey from Platform 9 and 3 Quarters. After his amazing experience with Hagrid in Diagon Alley, poor Harry has to go back to live with the Dursleys for an entire month before he's supposed to leave for Hogwarts. The Dursleys are so angry and also so terrified by what happened at the hut on the rock that they completely ignore Harry for the most part. The narrator mentions that it does get a little depressing after a while, and Harry's thankful that he at least has his new pet owl, Hedwig, to keep him company. Finally, the night before Harry's supposed to leave for school, he approaches Uncle Vernon to ask for a ride to London, where he's supposed to catch the Hogwarts Express from Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Vernon scoffs at Harry for not even knowing where Hogwarts is and says, quote, Don't talk rubbish. There's no Platform 9 and 3 quarters, end quote. Harry's persistent, though, telling Vernon that it's written on his ticket. Lumos. Don't talk rubbish. There's no such thing. One of the most popular arguments I've heard from people who don't know Jesus is that it's nonsense to believe in a God we can't even see. People say things like, it's just a fairy tale, or you can't prove it, and they scoff at Christians for believing in something that they consider intangible. What sets Christianity apart is that, like Harry, we do have written proof that what we believe is in fact true. And of course, I'm talking about the Bible. But even beyond the written word, there is evidence for God's existence all around us. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature— so they have no excuse for not knowing God. 
In this verse, Paul is explaining that there is evidence for the existence of God in everything he has made. And I completely agree. Regardless of all these various theories such as evolution and the Big Bang and whatever, my logical brain insists that there's no way that all of these complicated, complex systems of life and order just accidentally came to existence. To me, that notion is along the same lines as the storyline in Peter Pan that says that fairies come into existence when babies laugh. I mean, it's a cool idea, but it's nonsense. That's the stuff of fairy tales. There is tons of scientific and historical evidence that support the Bible. Tons! I'll include a link in the show notes to a website called Answers in Genesis. It contains a wealth of information from scientists and scholars that helps explain the truth of everything the Bible teaches. I also recommend for anybody who's curious this book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's a true story about an atheist investigative journalist who went on a mission to disprove the Bible, but he ended up being so convinced by all the evidence he uncovered that the Bible is true that he's now a Christian. It's such a good read. It's full of logical evidence for all of my analytical friends out there, and there's a movie about it too, so I encourage you to go and read that or watch that. So no matter how many Uncle Vernons out there try to convince me that there is no God, I've got a ticket to heaven that says otherwise. Knox. Agreeing to disagree about the existence of Platform 9 and 3 quarters, Uncle Vernon tells Harry that they're headed to London anyway to have Dudley's tail removed. (laughs) So he'll drop him off at King's Cross Station. When they get to the station, Uncle Vernon points out to Harry that there's a sign for Platform 9 and there's a sign for Platform 10, but there's nothing in between. And then he just leaves Harry there and walks away laughing. And this part is wild to me because if there had in fact not been a platform to Hogwarts, this family just totally ditched an 11-year-old kid in London and left him there. Well, Harry starts to panic, wondering if maybe Hagrid forgot to explain something to him, when suddenly he hears a woman mention the word muggles. He follows her and her children, and he's shocked when he sees the kids disappear one by one through the barrier between platforms 9 and 10. He gets up the courage to ask the woman for help, and she introduces him to her son Ron, who is also a new student at Hogwarts. Then she kindly explains that all he has to do is walk straight at the barrier and keep going. Lumos. Asking for help. So at the time of recording, I've been an educator for almost 18 years, and during that time, I've noticed a sad phenomenon. It seems like the older people get, the less likely they are to ask for help. Elementary school students are full of questions. I mean, God bless any elementary teachers out there. Y'all must answer 10 bajillion questions per day. But then students get to middle school, and I've taught middle school for a lot of years, and Suddenly, it's like the kids feel embarrassed to ask for help, as though it's like admitting some sort of weakness. And then by high school, which I also have a lot of experience with, a lot of students have stopped being embarrassed of asking for help, but they've slipped into this kind of apathy so that they just don't bother asking questions. And then, of course, we have the adults. And y'all know how often adults really have a hard time asking for help, no matter how much we're struggling. So what is it that keeps us from asking for help when we need it? I think a lot of times it has to do with either pride or false humility. Pride can keep people from asking for help because they think it's going to make them look bad. False humility keeps people from asking for help because they fear they're a burden to others. And both of these attitudes are unhealthy and can really hinder God's plan for your life. 
Scripture is full of examples of people asking for and receiving help from others. And one of my favorite stories comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. It says this, While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, Choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. Now as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired that he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. I love this story because it's such a beautiful example of the fact that we can't do it alone. There's no way Moses could stand and hold his hands up for the entire day. But with the help of his friends, he was able to do it and get the victory. And of course, the Bible is also full of verses about turning to God for help. And he is always there, guys. He's always willing to help, always willing to hear your cry. So what do you need help with today? Will you ask for it? Knox. Harry gets up the courage to walk at the barrier and finds himself magically transported onto a platform with a red steam engine waiting to take him to Hogwarts. As he makes his way to the train, Harry takes in a number of different people and situations. One of the boys he had seen pass through the barrier offers to help Harry load his trunk onto the train, and he notices Harry's lightning scar. The boy's twin brother realizes who Harry is, and they both kind of gawp at Harry until their mom calls them back onto the platform. Through the window, Harry watches the family as they say their goodbyes. He overhears the twins telling their mother they met Harry Potter, and their little sister squeals with excitement. When the boys get back on the train, they introduce themselves as Fred and George Weasley, and also introduce their younger brother Ron to Harry before leaving Harry and Ron alone. Well, now the two engage in an adorably awkward conversation in which Ron is fascinated by Harry and his scar, and Harry is fascinated by the fact that Ron comes from an entirely magical family. Ron tells Harry all about his family and his home and shows Harry his pet rat, Scabbers. When the conversation turns to Harry's explanation of how Hagrid found him and told him all about the wizarding world, Ron reacts in horror when Harry says the name Voldemort out loud. He explains to Harry that no one in the wizarding world says that name out loud. Harry feels embarrassed that he didn't know that, and he tells Ron he's afraid he will be the worst student in their class. When lunchtime rolls around, a woman stops by their carriage with a trolley of snacks for sale. Ron doesn't buy anything and settles down to eat the sandwich that his mom packed for him, which he actually doesn't like. But Harry buys a load of sweets, and he splits them with Ron. Harry is really happy because for the first time, he has something to share and someone to share it with. Lumos, sharing our wealth. One of the most beautiful things about the Bible is that it's full of evidence of God's heart for the needy. Throughout scripture, God is calling on his people to share what we have with others, taking care of each other and using our wealth and plenty to make sure the needs of others are met. I think this interaction between Harry and Ron is a great example of the joy that comes from giving. Of course, Ron's happy to have sweets to eat instead of his sandwich, but I love how happy Harry is that he's able to share. 
How many of us think about our wealth that way? I know I'm guilty of focusing sometimes on what I don't have rather than being thankful for what I do have and enjoying the honor of sharing it with others. 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Notice the reasons Paul gives for Christians to be enriched, so that we can be generous, and so that it results in people giving thanks to God. See, God delights to enrich people who he can trust to use that wealth to help other people. And that doesn't mean we can't enjoy our own wealth too. Notice that Harry pigged out on candy too. He didn't just give it all away. And it also doesn't just mean enriched financially either. We can be enriched with time and talent also that we can share with other people. And those things are just as important to be generous with. The coolest thing about sharing out of our faith is something I call the loaves and fishes effect. There's an amazing story in the Gospels of the time when Jesus was able to feed 5,000 men, not to mention the women and children who were with them, from only five loaves of bread and two fish, and there were leftovers. Now, this miracle blows my mind every time I read about it, but I've actually started to notice in my own life that when it comes to sharing, there does always seem to be enough. A lot of times when I have people over to my house, for example, I get tempted to stress over having enough food and drink to go around. And let's be real, the budget is tight sometimes. But I've come to understand and trust that when I'm showing hospitality, welcoming others into my home and sharing what I have with them, there is always enough. And I think that's a result of trusting that God will provide enough to cover whoever we're willing to share with. And this is how the church was originally designed to operate. The book of Acts recounts how the first church handled their wealth. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. That's the key to generosity. Understanding that what we own isn't really ours at all, but rather it all belongs to God. And when we start looking at our wealth and our time and our talent in that way, sharing becomes easy because we begin to recognize that we don't own things, but we steward things for God. And just like Harry, we can experience joy when we're able to share and when we have someone to share with. I want to share a little quote that my family uses with you. So my dad told me that he actually learned from my grandmother that in order for there to be cheerful givers, there also has to be cheerful receivers. So I want to encourage you, if you're the one that is being shared with, please don't shy away from it. Remember how joyful it was for Harry to share his candy with Ron. What if Ron had been too embarrassed? What if he had said, no, I'm not your charity case. I don't want your help. I mean, that could have prevented them from developing the amazing friendship that's coming. We have to be willing to accept the generosity of others just as much as we're willing to give it. Knox. As Harry and Ron enjoy their snacks, Harry unwraps a chocolate frog and finds a trading card with Albus Dumbledore on it. After reading about the Hogwarts headmaster on the back of the card, he flips it over again to find that Dumbledore's disappeared from the photo. Ron says, quote, well, you can't expect him to hang around all day, end quote, and explains that magical photographs can move. I love that Ron is just as flabbergasted that muggle photos don't move as Harry is about the magical ones. Next, they enjoy some Birdie Bots Every Flavor Beans, and Harry's surprised by all the strange flavors. And then a boy named Neville pokes his head into their compartment to see if they've seen his missing toad. 
Now Ron decides to try some magic on his pet rat, Scabbers, and a girl joins them right as he's about to try the spell. She doesn't seem surprised when the spell doesn't work. She introduces herself as Hermione Granger, and she tells Harry that she has read all about him in several books. Harry is super shocked that he's mentioned in books, and it's another reminder that even though he didn't know about the Wizarding World until recently, the Wizarding World definitely knew about him. After Hermione leaves, Ron tells Harry about the Hogwarts houses, and then about his older brothers who have already graduated. He mentions a newspaper report that a high-security vault at Gringotts was robbed, and says that when stuff like that happens, people get really nervous because they all still fear Voldemort, who he refers to as you-know-who. By now, Harry is also starting to feel a little trickle of fear every time you-know-who is mentioned, and he realizes he was much more comfortable saying Voldemort's name without worrying. Lumos. Fearing a name. Psalm 86, verse 11 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. When the Bible mentions fearing the Lord's name, it's not the same fear that Harry's beginning to feel when someone mentions you-know-who. The word fear used here in the Bible means to revere or to hold something in reverence. It's about respecting God, about being in awe of his power. It's not about being scared of him. And this makes sense once you realize that God's love for you is perfect and unshakable. He's not scary when you belong to him. He's certainly worthy of the utmost respect and reverence, though. But the conversation between Harry and Ron about being scared to save Voldemort's name got me thinking about the way we refer to the villain in our own world, Satan. Now, normally, I do my best not to talk about him very much because I'd rather give my attention to Jesus. But when I do mention Satan, a lot of times I refer to him as the enemy. And actually, the word Satan isn't technically a name at all, but more of a title meaning the accuser. The Bible uses lots of quote-unquote names to refer to him. The deceiver, the father of lies, the evil one, the devil, and Beelzebul, which actually means Lord of the Flies. Chew on that one for a while. I was today years old when I found that out. And those are just a few of the ways that the Bible refers to him. To be honest, there's still a temptation for me every now and then to get a little creeped out when I talk about Satan. It's almost like I don't want to draw his attention. But then I remember this verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over them because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Wow, what a powerful verse, guys. It reminds me that I don't need to be scared of Satan or any of his names because the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living God lives in me, and he is infinitely stronger than the devil. And don't miss this. It's not my power or yours that gives us the victory over our enemy. It's the spirit of God. So whatever name we call him, we can rest assured that the victory is already won. And the only name I'm going to fear, meaning revere, is the name of the Lord my God. Knox. The conversation turns to Quidditch, and Harry and Ron are thoroughly enjoying themselves until in walks the snobby boy Harry had met at Madame Malkin's shop back in Diagon Alley. The boy asks Harry if the rumors he's been hearing that Harry Potter is on the train are true, and if that's him. Harry simply says yes, and notices that the other two boys with the blonde boy look pretty intimidating. The boy introduces himself as Draco Malfoy. 
Ron tries to stifle a laugh, but Malfoy turns on him for laughing at his name and then says he already knows who Ron is. He can tell by the bright red hair and freckles that Ron must be a Weasley. He goes on to repeat that his father has told him the Weasleys are poor, and he warns Harry to avoid making friends with, quote, the wrong sort, end quote. When he tries to shake Harry's hand, Harry refuses and says, quote, I think I can tell who the wrong sort are for myself, thanks, end quote. Here, Draco nastily tells Harry that if he doesn't learn to be more polite, he will end up dying like his parents, and that if he hangs around with riffraff like Ron and Hagrid, they'll rub off on him. At this, Ron and Harry leap to their feet, and they're dangerously close to a physical fight with Malfoy and his friends, until Scabbers the Rat bites Goyle's finger. The bullies leave, and Hermione comes back. Harry explains to her and Ron that he had met Malfoy back in Diagon Alley. Ron tells them that his dad said that Malfoy's family are all dark wizards who had come back over to their side after the fall of you-know-who. Lumos. I can tell the wrong sort for myself, thanks. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, Jesus teaches, A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Again, in Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. These verses teach us that we can tell what sort of person someone is by their actions and by their words. And it can be so tempting to judge people by what others say about them, especially when we hear about them from someone we know and trust. But I want you to notice that Jesus isn't teaching us to judge others by gossip, but rather by the actions and words that we see them produce. In the interaction with Malfoy on the train, we see that Malfoy has made a judgment about Ron and his family based on what his father had told him. And Ron did the same thing about Malfoy. But Harry had made up his mind about Malfoy's character back in Diagon Alley, where Malfoy's words and actions showed Harry firsthand that he's not the sort of guy he wants to hang out with. I think it's important also to take inventory of our own words and actions. It can be uncomfortable, but we have to ask ourselves, am I producing good fruit by doing good things? Are the words that I speak encouraging others or bringing them down? In other words, am I being a Harry or a Malfoy? Knox. Finally, the train arrives at Hogsmeade Station, and Harry and the rest of the first-year students are greeted by Hagrid. After a short walk, the Hogwarts castle comes into view, causing lots of oohs and ahs. Hagrid takes the first years on the traditional trip across the lake in a fleet of little boats, and they finally arrive at Hogwarts. What a good chapter, guys, and that's that's a lot for me to digest. I don't know how you're feeling, but I feel like, okay, I need to go and, and continue to kind of chew on some of that myself. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will join me next week for chapter seven. 
And in the meantime, I appreciate it if you would come on over to Instagram, follow my account at Gospel According to Harry Potter. And the reason I want you to join me there is because I actually like to do a little bit of what I'm going to call research by talking to you guys. I post questions and surveys and polls in my stories, and I actually use the information from that in a lot of my episodes. So if you want to be part of the conversation, make sure that you head over there. Again, you can also DM me there with any questions you might have. And please, please feel free to follow and share this podcast with any other Potterheads or Jesus Freaks in your life who you think might enjoy it. I appreciate every single listener, every review, every five-star rating, and I give all that glory to God. I'm just doing what he's told me to do here. So I'm hoping that you love it. I can't wait until next week when we talk about Chapter 7 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by J.K. Rowling. And until then, don't let the muggles get you down. Bye.